wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to A Quirky Journey, the healthy family podcast with your hosts, Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab. Hi everyone, it's Joe here. I hope you're having a good day. Um, it's Friday afternoon here and I'm sitting outside in the sunshine recording the intro to this podcast. Um, Fuad and I didn't manage to get the intro recorded together and he's driving today down to Kayama. Kayama? I always say that place wrong. I'm sorry, people who live there. <laughs> Beautiful place. Um, he's going down there for the wellness breakthrough um, with the Wellness Couch guys. So um, he'll be down there speaking tomorrow. So hopefully some of you listening will be there. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I spoke at the one in Brisbane and it was awesome. So if you're going, have fun, enjoy, learn lots and say hi to Fuad because he'd love to meet you. Um, so we did this podcast, we recorded this podcast earlier in the week and we asked in the chat groups um, if anyone had any questions for us. So we've ans- we've gotten Lila Mason to answer a lot of the questions and she will be um, sharing all sorts of helpful tips for parents in this podcast. So um, for those of you who haven't heard of Lila Mason, probably you have, but if you haven't, um, let me just give you a little bit of an intro to her. So she's a pediatrician and a lactation consultant here in Australia. She uses a biomedical approach to treat gastrointestinal, metabolic, immunologic or other problems impacting a child's physical and mental health. Um, She specialises in treating children with autism, ADHD, behavioural problems, OCD, um, kids with recurrent infections, nutritional deficiencies, breastfeeding, and she's really helpful for kids with allergies. Um, So she practises in Sydney. She may also do Skype consults, I'm not sure, but she speaks at the Mind Forum whenever we... um, have the mind forum in sydney Um, she speaks at that and she is a really knowledgeable helpful um person to listen to if you can listen to any of her podcasts this one we talk like i said we talk a lot about um, children's health and we answer things like well she answers we ask (laughs) um, things about breastfeeding and um good health for babies then we go on to um, older children children with allergies um, kids that have problems with things like asthma and eczema and um, gut health issues add um, autism so we talk through a lot of the questions that you guys sent in so it's there's just so much packed into this episode i think you'll find it really helpful if you've got kids especially kids suffering from any kind of um, illnesses or allergies or um, behavioral issues then please have a listen to this podcast I think you'll find it great so we've got the details for um, Dr Lila's website and book on the show notes have a look at those she has a book um, that both Fuad and I downloaded the book straight away at the end of the podcast before we even went off air (laughs) it's a really good book for children's health so um, I know when I had my kids and they were little Um, I found a book that was so helpful to me that I constantly referred to whenever they got sick that was all natural health, Um, like it it went through what the problem, you know, what the childhood illness symptoms were and um, how to work through them naturally and what to ask your doctor and things like that. So this is that kind of book. It's very, very helpful, but it goes into um, diet and all sorts of things. It's really great. So um, have a look at her book um, on her website. 
It says it's for New Zealand children, but that's because it was published in New Zealand. It's just for any children. She is getting it republished in Australia. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so um, I hope you enjoy this podcast. And um, I've got, let's see, I've got a few weeks at home um, and then we are planning on classes, seminars in Byron Bay and Sydney in early July. So keep an eye out for those. We still haven't got those up on the website yet, but they'll be up soon. So if you live in those areas, keep an eye on Facebook and on the newsletter. If you're not subscribed to our newsletter, you can go to the blog, quirkycooking.com.au, and click on the subscribe button, and um, you'll be able to keep up with when we have seminars, events, um, new recipes, all sorts of hints and tips. The next newsletter coming out is going to have lots of ideas for using up your citrus fruit because this is the time of year when everyone's trees are going crazy and the neighbours are dropping by with bags of fruit. Hopefully they are around here anyway. (laughs) And so um, we've got lots of fruit. Um, So if you want some ideas for using up your lemons, limes, oranges, tangelos, pomelos, grapefruit, all of that beautiful citrus fruit so it doesn't go to waste, um, hop on to the website, subscribe to the newsletter, and we'll send that out soon. And it includes my new recipe for lemon yogurt cake, which is so delicious. There's a dairy-free version as well, and it's grain-free and gluten-free. And then next week, we've got another cake recipe coming to the blog for those of you who are grain-free and egg-free. So this is a really exciting one, and dairy-free, um, which Fuad made up recently, and we talked about that on the last podcast. Okay, so I'm going to go and get this podcast up for you guys and I hope you have an awesome weekend or whenever you're listening to this, have a great day and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hello, Lila, and welcome to our show. Hi, Joe. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you today. I'm so glad to have you on here. We have lots of questions for you, don't we, Fuad? Yes. Oh, I look forward to them. <laughs> uh, it looks like from your website um, and also from hearing you at the Mind Forum um, that you cover a very wide variety of um, topics with childhood illnesses and allergies and behavioural issues and autism and ADHD. Can you just give us a bit of an explanation of what you do and how you got into um, your, your current work? Yeah, um, I'm a pediatrician. So I trained in San Francisco at the University of California there in general pediatrics. And uh, then already from before then, I had a real interest in nutrition and in more integrative health. You know, I was interested in Chinese medicine and acupuncture and acupressure in mindfulness and um hypnosis for children for example while I was in San Francisco I was learning about how to calm children down while they had painful procedures so they wouldn't be so stressed out and not feeling the pain so much and so when I finished that and um, started seeing children I felt like I really needed more skills to help these children overcome their problems not just prescribing a medication for a symptom but actually figuring out what was really causing their issues you know I mean Mm. In mainstream medicine, when a child comes with eczema, you give them some steroid cream and it will suppress the inflammation and the eczema will go away. But as soon as you stop the cream, it will come back. And I thought that can't be really the solution. So Mm -hmm. I learned about nutritional medicine and environmental medicine and did a lot of further training. And now what I do is I really look at 
for example, with eczema, why does this child have eczema? Is it an allergy to something they're eating or to something in the environment? Or is it a bad gut flora? Or are they possibly low in vitamin D and their immune system is weak, uh, low in zinc, and their skin cannot heal very well? And then when you look at all these different things and kind of find a package of, of treatments that will address those issues, you can actually help the child outgrow the eczema and overcome it. And mm -hmm. um, I think that's a much better solution for the child and the family than just masking a symptom. So important. Yeah, I mean, this is something I deal with here with my own daughter. She's uh, five years old and she has eczema and um, also asthma. And um, we eat like a paleo diet with just a little bit of rice in there as well. So like we're pretty much whole foods all the time, but she still every once in a while has a flare up and um, she experiences all these issues that we, we're trying to control with diet, but we also fear that there's something beyond that um, that we need to look at. But at, at her age, she's so young at the moment to um, like maybe do blood tests and things like that that might be painful for her. Um, how do you deal with children who are dealing with these um, really severe issues sometimes? And how, how do you, um, how would you work around? What's your diagnosis process? Well, you know, in a five-year-old who's suffering from eczema, I would just say, you know, a two-minute blood test where you can use a numbing plaster on the arm so that she won't feel much of it anyway is going to be less traumatic than another two years of mm. eczema. Yeah. We know from research that kids who have severe eczema, they're really, for life, they suffer. They may outgrow the eczema, but they will never really enjoy the touch, you know, the feeling of being touched because it reminds them of having eczema. So I have my own sister had really terrible eczema as a child, and I can see even now as a grown woman she doesn't really like to get close to people. And I think it, I mean, we do have the psychological studies on that, that it really affects people for life. So I think the sooner you can find the actual cause, the better. And if it does mean a blood test, I would prepare the child really well for that, but I wouldn't be scared to doing a blood test in a five-year-old. If, I mean, unless the child is super anxious, but okay. most children, you can talk to them. There are ways, you know, I mentioned the Emla plaster, which is a numbing, so you put on the arm half an hour before you go to the lab. So you actually don't feel much um, of the needle prick. You have to find a phlebotomist who's really experienced with children. And then you need to distract your child. So you can bring bubbles yeah. along or you can read them a story or tell them a story. You can say, look, this arm, we're going to forget about it. The lady or the gentleman are going to do, deal with it, take some blood, but we are going to look over on the other side. And... Maybe even in this one case, I would allow a phone to be distracted. Yeah? Right. Yeah. Yes, um, and it really doesn't take long. And I would say 95% of the children I see, they don't get traumatized. They're fine. They're, you know, mm -hmm. they've forgotten about it five minutes later. There are some children who are super anxious and then we work around it. We do other things. Um, you know, I mean, for example, there are many studies that show that the lower your vitamin D is, the more asthma and eczema you will have and the more exacerbations and the harder it will be to treat. So since I know that most children in Sydney in the winter are low in vitamin D, I would probably just give your daughter some vitamin D if we can't do a blood test, you know, because um, most kids are low. You're not going to harm a child. In Europe, in the areas that are as far away from the equator as we are here, 
children do get vitamin D in the winter, all children. So ah. it's, you know, it's public health policy. So it's safe and it's effective and the kids get sick less often. And in particular for asthma and eczema, it's very, very helpful. That's, that's really a great tip. Um, I, yeah, I don't want to get is. into the, the details because uh, I'm getting the urge to ask what kind of blood tests you, you get into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, we can do a little practice consultation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe like a, a bigger picture kind of thing. And maybe uh, I'd love to hear um, through the years now, what are you seeing as an increased uh, need for um, dealing with children who have these issues. Are, are there more and more children having this? And what's been your clinical experience? Yeah, well, we definitely have an increase in chronic health problems in children. Mm. Definitely. I mean, one quarter of all teenagers suffer from asthma in Australia. And um, many, many children are, suffer from eczema. Uh, a lot of babies have already allergies. And, you know, reflux, for example, in a baby is usually a reaction to something they're eating. Most of the time it's dairy. Even if the mother is breastfeeding and she's having cow's milk, it can affect the baby and cause reflux in the baby. So we see more and more of that. And then we have also a lot more developmental and behavior issues than we used to. I mean, up to 10% of children in Australia are diagnosed with ADHD. And uh, we have, we don't know the numbers for autism in Australia, but we know in America it's now one in 59 children. So yeah. when I did my training um, 25 years ago, it was one in 2,500 children. <gasps> really? So it's really gone up dramatically. Wow. And, you know, we know, of course, that the genes couldn't have changed in that time. Yeah. Um, it must be something in the environment or maybe many environmental factors that are causing this increase. Also, to some extent, of course, better diagnosis, earlier diagnosis. It is true there's some of that. I mean, the, the critics always say, oh, it's all just now that we're diagnosing everybody with these illnesses. And um, to some degree, that's true, but there's still a big part of that increase that, that is not covered by that. And People who are doing research on that uh, are looking at environmental toxins. Mm. And for example, we know that a, a, the closer a woman lives near a, to a field where they use pesticides in her pregnancy, the higher the risk that that child she was pregnant with will develop autism. Wow. So, you know, exposure to pesticides, and we're, of course, using much more pesticides now than we used to. Um, then traffic as well. If a woman lives close to a motorway, that increases the risk. Then other toxins, you know, I mean, you name the toxin, it's increased. We now have 80,000 chemicals that are being produced in high amounts mm -hmm. and are released into the environment, and very, very few of those have actually been tested to see if they're safe in humans and for human development. So we are really doing a huge experiment with our children. And yeah. we're now saying that the children are the, the canaries in the coal mine. They are the ones who are showing us that this environment is just not livable anymore. We cannot continue to pollute our earth the way we're doing it. So, um, you know, ADHD, birth defects, developmental problems, uh, autism. Or if in all of those you find connections with um, toxins. Yeah. It seems to have, like even seeing it from um, 
our own experience. Like at school, we didn't see kids so much that had, well, I don't remember anyone at school that had autism um, unless I just didn't realise. Um, but, you know, all the OCD and the anxiety and all of these things that are so common now amongst children, I don't remember my friends having trouble with that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I agree. It's just I don't either. crazy how much more common it is now. Yeah. Yeah. And even the um, childhood obesity and diabetics and all of this sort of thing, it's just really gotten out of control. Do, can you tell us a little bit about um, why you think, besides the toxins, do you think it's also um, like immune system we're not keeping up with building up our children's immune systems somehow that's changed or what do you think i know you do a lot of stuff around immunity Mm. well you're totally right of course i mean nutrition is the number one thing you know Mm -hmm. i mean if you look at what people ate two generations ago they they ate you know an apple and now kids get a little tube that has some Mm. apple with sugar process in it that they suck out i mean Nutrition, I would say, is the number one thing because you also have total control over it. We yes. know for sure that the obesity epidemic is due to what we're eating. There's mm-hmm. some, of course, degree also with about environmental toxins that influences that. But the big thing really is that people go to McDonald's and mm-hmm. eat or go to the supermarket and buy packages that just contain really empty calories. It's usually a mix. If you look at what kids eat, a lot of children, they eat a mix of white flour, sugar, some dairy, some fat, and different (laughs) combinations of that. So that could be a really processed uh, cereal for breakfast with sugar and milk, and then a cheese toasty for lunch, and then a pizza or pasta with cheese for dinner. And yeah, you're right. Absolutely no nutrition in that. None. Mm. It is all. It's calories. There's enough calories to grow and to grow big, but it's yeah. not what kids need to be healthy for the immune system, for their brain, and um, for them to be happy. And you know, all of those. I mean, there are no B vitamins. There's no zinc in those foods. So the, the nutrition for me is number one. And yeah. that's really the first thing I talk to every family about is how to improve their child's diet. You know, giving the child real foods, they need to eat five servings of vegetables. And only 5% of Australian kids do that, eating yeah. five handfuls of vegetables. And it's just, that's the number one thing. If you eat that, you not only will you get vitamins and minerals, but you also get the fiber that feeds your good gut bacteria. So, mm-hmm. And if you feed your good gut bacteria, you'll have a much better gut flora. And that's the other big thing for the immune system that I wanted to mention is gut flora. Yeah. And it's not only gut flora, it's our microbiome. It's the bacteria and the viruses and even parasites that live in our gut, but also on our skin and in our throat and our nose and, you know, any anywhere in the body where they can get in. <laughs> and they're very, very important for they are they kind of set our immune system you eat sugar you eat vegetables you'll feed good gut bacteria and depending on what kind of gut flora you have early on in life by about one and a half or two years of age that's kind of what your immune system sets to and that sets really your immunity for life. I mean, you can still work on it, of course. If you change your diet, 
you got favorable change over time. But it is very important to get those first couple of years right and, you know, to do to do all the right things and none of the bad things. I mean, the right things mm. are to breastfeed and then to give good weaning foods that are whole foods, you know, vegetables ideally, and not too early, from six months, not from four months, mm. and, um, and not introducing sugar, not introducing sweet drinks, all of those things, trying to avoid antibiotics unless, of course, you need it. If antibiotics are really needed, I'm not against them, but they're often used when they're not needed. And yeah. then, um, yeah, and avoiding, for example, also a reflex medication unless it's absolutely needed in infants because that affects your gut flora. So there are lots of different things we do as doctors that are actually harming the gut flora and the child's immune system. And the other big thing we... Sorry, of that? Sorry? Can you give an example of the things that are... That doctors do were antibiotics. Yeah. Reflex medication would be two big ones. Um, too many, you know, I mean, in birth, if ideally, if you're born naturally, if the baby's born naturally, they get the mother's gut flora, they swallow it on the way out. And that's really the way they they get their first big seeding of their gut. And that's what you want. But if you're born by a C-section, you have a completely different gut flora. you have the gut flora that actually resembles the skin flora of the hospital workers, which is, of course, not what you want. In mm. And I do totally agree that C-sections can save lives and are sometimes needed. But we also know that there are certain areas, you know, where it's trendy to have a C-section and up to 30 mm. or 35% of women choose to have a C-section without actually knowing the long-term effects of that. You know, they think it's better for them. It's not better for them. It's actually safer to have a vaginal birth. And it's much, much better for the baby to go through the birth canal, unless, of course, there are complications. So I always say that because, you know, I, I want to make that clear. If a woman really or a baby is at risk, they need a C-section. Absolutely. Mm. You know, but many, many, in many cases, it's not really indicated and it's more of a, a choice. And I think... People need to know. They need to have informed consent, you know, really knowing what they're getting into. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to mention is you went to the Mind Foundation. You heard Maya Shitreet Klein, the yes. pediatric neurologist who's written the book, The Dirt Cure. She's and great. She's wonderful. And that's, yeah. you know, we need to get our kids out playing in dirt. That's how yeah. you get good gut bacteria. <laughs> yeah. And what did she say? I think she said two hours a day they should be outside playing. At least, yes, yes. The more, the yeah. better. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Laila, I'm just wondering with um, all these different uh, symptoms, I guess, or diseases or whatever the classification is these days, so you can have like a metabolic issue or uh, a gastrointestinal issue or autism, ADHD, behavioral problems, OCD, asthma, skin issues. And we're talking about taking it back to like, the diet and looking at the diet and the diet for um, all of these different conditions seems to be focusing on the, um, like, let's say if we, Joe and I talk about gaps, so a, um, a nutrient dense diet that is easy to digest, that's low in trigger foods that can trigger your immune system and um, doesn't make the, your gut work hard for it. And then also repopulating the gut bacteria. And is this your approach? And if so, then what, 
are these classifications really valid? And what is the pathway of disease then, then when you can give one kind of diet that will help all these different people with the way that they're behaving or like with, with the way that their symptoms are manifesting? Does that make sense or is that too complicated a question? No, it's an interesting yeah. question. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think um, that the GAPS diet is an absolute must for everybody. I start with just a healthy diet for everyone where they eat, instead of eating processed food with additives in it um, and lots of sugar, taking all that out and eating real whole foods. Yeah. So, um, for example, they can have um, an oat porridge with a nut milk for breakfast with some nuts and seeds and some organic berries. Um, or they can have, you know, um, they have to have their five servings of vegetables a day. They can have, have some whole grains. I'm just talking general now. Yes. Not, yes. Not specifically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, drinking water, having a handful of nuts a day, having um, good oils like olive oil um, for, you know, for salads and so on, um, avocado, and then some healthy protein. I mean, I myself, I'm vegan and I am vegan for ethical reasons because I really think the way we're raising animals nowadays is a very bad idea, the way we do it. Also for the environment, we're destroying our environment with um, the factory farming. And... Uh, I think health-wise, also, all the research really shows that um, plant-based diets are the healthiest. So I don't agree with the people who say you should eat lots and lots of meat. But a little bit of meat is probably okay, you know, for, for our health. So I think, but you have to have that as a condiment to your lots and lots of vegetables. That's the big thing. Yeah. And then um, specifically, so I see children with allergies and sometimes if they eat this healthy diet and they're allergic to something, they're not going to be well. So let's say they're allergic to rice or wheat or dairy, you know, then we need to take those things out. But you can test that. And I take those, the foods that the child is allergic to out until their immune system has had time to recover and hopefully eventually they outgrow the allergy by, you know, improving the gut flora, getting their vitamin D level up, their omega-3 level, their zinc level, all of those, whatever they may be missing in their, in their system, if we get that all to optimal levels, often the immune system just calms down enough that the allergy is no longer there. On the other hand, a child um, with ADHD, they, it's maybe more important to really um, concentrate on the sugar and on the additives. You know, I mean, I don't want anyone to have additives, but in particular, a child who has ADHD, if they have um, a coloring like one or two, the orange color, they just often climb the walls, you know, and that's an absolute no-no. And then for a child with autism, I would usually recommend a trial of all gluten and all dairy because mm -hmm. children on the autism spectrum have yet again a different kind of gut flora from neurotypical children and they cannot digest fully gluten and dairy. And then the half-digested gluten and half-digested dairy comes gets absorbed into the bloodstream and looks in its molecular structure very similar to morphine and goes to the endorphin receptors in our body and causes exactly the same symptoms as if the child had morphine. So they're drugged, they're addicted to the food, and 
a lot of parents of children with autism will tell you that, that their child is, is addicted to gluten and dairy. They will climb into the cupboards to look for it. Yeah. They'll eat Play-Doh if they can't get other wheat, you know. <laughs> and they um, get constipated. A lot of children with autism, up to 80% of kids with autism have gut issues. And often it is a mixture of constipation and overflow diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem is this morphine effect of the gluten and dairy. And then there also the other third effect of gluten and dairy is that they're kind of in their own world, just like an addict, a morphine addict. You know, they're kind of mm -hmm. quite happy not to interact and just be in their own world. And when you take gluten and dairy completely out of their system, within a few weeks, I hear it over and over again from parents my child is becoming more interactive he's looking at me now he's noticing what's going on around him or her and that's you know so that's that gluteomorphine and caseomorphine effect so there's a specific diet that may be helpful in a specific issue autism not everyone but many many children will respond and you could actually do a, a test to predict who will who will respond by you can do a urine test for this gluteomorphin caseomorphin and see if the child has it you can mm. measure it mm. can we go back to the beginning and um have a little bit of a talk about breastfeeding because um, I know I had a lot of trouble with my last two with breastfeeding and it was due to my own health. Do you also work with um, like preconception with mothers? Do you do that kind of work as well or is it mostly um, starting from where they're at? And what's some advice that you would have for um, new parents? Yeah. So as a pediatrician, I really start seeing the family usually when the baby is born, you know, yeah. after birth. But I've had several families who came and said, we want to see you while we're pregnant just to make mm -hmm. sure that we're, you know, preparing the right track. for our baby. Yeah. Maybe because there's a health issue with older siblings or yes. in the family. So, and I think it's very important to work with somebody. You know, we now know mm -hmm. that um, pre but preconception is amazing if you can do preconception health, you know, mm. so just, you know, working on your own health, both parents, before you even conceive the baby. And, you know, learning about environmental toxins and getting rid of them out of your home. Yeah. And so you're not even exposed to them. And then next thing, of course, is prenatal health, you know, so that during the pregnancy, you eat healthy food, you have all the right nutrients, the right supplements that you may need. I mean, in Australia, for example, our soils are very low in iodine, yes. calcium, and zinc. And there are three very, very important nutrients for our thyroid to function well. So can you repeat them? I think it cut out on the second one that you mentioned. You said iodine and zinc. And what was the third? Selenium. Selenium. Yes. Okay. And if you don't have those and your thyroid doesn't function well, that can affect your child's development. Okay. Mm. So even if a mother is only slightly hypothyroid, so that her thyroid works a little bit less than, than well, that can affect the child's development in utero, so in the belly and then later on as well. So really important to get those. So it's important to take a good prenatal vitamin that has all of those in it and, you know, a good B, B vitamins in it and vitamin D is very important you know below that we know that the better the mother's vitamin D level in the pregnancy the better the immune system of the child later on and the lower the risk that that child will develop um, autism or 
um, allergies. Allergies also very important. Then, um, so the advice I would give is that find someone who works with you on that and get get your nutrients right. And the other thing is. I love that everybody gets prepared for birth. You know, you do birthing classes mm-hmm. and all about it. But I think it is equally important to get prepared for breastfeeding. And people often forget yes. about that. They get maybe half an hour in their birthing preparation class. Mm-hmm. That. But breastfeeding, I mean, even though it's a natural thing, it doesn't come so naturally nowadays because we don't see it. You know, That's I mean, right. if, we, if you lived in a traditional village where... You know, you're surrounded by people of all ages and you would have seen a hundred people breastfeed before yeah. you give birth to your own child and breastfeed. And there would be a hundred women around there who would help you. Yes. But we're so um, isolated now and live, you know, the generations are so separated that you don't have that experience. So I think it's really important to get prepared for that, to know, mm. you know, how... I mean, how it works, first of all, breastfeeding. You know, even if you just read a book about it and watch some videos on YouTube, that can teach you a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. But there are also classes you can take. And, um, and then, of course, you know, if, if there are breastfeeding problems after birth, it is um, a good idea to go and see a lactation consultant, a specialist in breastfeeding. Yeah, um, I did that training when I had my second baby because I, I took some time off after he was born. I thought, well, I have to do something. I can't just work. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I became a lactation consultant because I thought, oh, well, I'm breastfeeding all day long anyway. I may as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I used to um, help people with um, parent. I, was, I taught parenting classes and I helped, you know, encourage people with breastfeeding and through a um, parenting group. and. I did great with my first two and then I think my health just really went downhill and I lost a lot of weight. Mm. And then with my last two, I had so much trouble with the breastfeeding and looking back, I can see that my gut health was really bad Mm. Um, and I was going to lactation consultants and they said it's got something to do with your diet. And But I think back then there wasn't as much help on diet as there is now. I don't know, or else I just didn't find it. And um, I sort of gave up after about five months of supplement feeding and tube feeding and all the things. But it was hard. It was really stressful. I had to pump after every feed, and it was just like you felt like your full time job was either feeding or pumping (laughs) (laughs) or trying to get some sleep. And um, I know there's a mother that has commented in the chat group and asked, you know, does it, it. like if if you have a baby and you're really struggling with the breastfeeding um what would be the first thing that you would look at for the mother well so if you if you (laughs) want to breastfeed (laughs) the first thing i would look at is i would um actually examine the child's um suck and see if they have a tongue tie for example Ah, that would make breastfeeding very hard for the baby yeah and those are the babies that often would often hurt the mom to breastfeed Mm. and the baby can't really get a good latch for very long to their feet for a minute and then they get tired because yeah. it's actually when your tongue is held back with that tongue tie, it's like, you know, like wanting to reach out with your arm, but somebody's holding it back and you keep trying to reach and reach and you, you know, get, you get very tired very fast. So um, that's one thing. And then looking whether the child has good tone, you know, some child, children have low muscle tone and then I would look at why, you know, maybe they need some, 
I don't know, it depends on the child, but maybe they're iron deficient or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the mom, of course, you know, that she gets enough support at home. I think that's very, very important. We, we expect moms nowadays to give birth and within three days to look perfect and go out and, ex- <laughs> and celebrate. Yeah. And that's not how it goes. You know, you're supposed to be home for four weeks, looked after by your aunts and aunt- aunties and <laughs> yeah. Mom. And being pampered, and all you have to do is get the breastfeeding right. Yeah, that's right. Of course, it doesn't happen. So, but I think that's really important. Get support. Get your friends to come in and help, and um, so that you can sleep when the baby sleeps. It, the first weeks and months of having a new baby are very, very exhausting. You know? mm. It is, and it. One thing I always tell everyone is, it gets better. It really does get easier. My children are now 21 and 16. And of course, you know, I'm really over the worst. <laughs> but it's um, the first months, you're just so exhausted and tired. And it's very, very important to not um, let yourself get so exhausted, you go crazy. You know, yeah. I think part of the prenatal, uh, postnatal depression and anxiety is often that moms are just overwhelmed with yeah. exhaustion. Yeah. And then they can't feed properly either. Yeah. No, you can't, you know, because your body kind of shuts down. So very important, yeah, that you get that. And then, um, of course, eat enough, drink enough. I mean, water, not alcohol, alcohol. Not, <laughs> not promote people. Keep, I mean, I don't know whether that you say that here too, but in Germany, it kept saying, "Oh, if you drink beer, it improves your mood." Yeah, I heard That's that. Not true. That's <laughs> not true. <laughs> it actually stops it. Yeah. Ah. And I mean, there are some nice herbs you can take, like a blessed thistle and fenugreek that promote mm-hmm. um, milk production. And there are even medications you can take if you need it. But yeah, it's you know. I think often all it needs is really a little bit of help with getting the babies um, on the breast in the right way, find the right position, you know, a relaxed position where the mom doesn't, you know, get is all stressed out. We talk now about the relaxed, reclined breastfeeding position where the mom actually leans back on a sofa or on a chair and has her feet up and the baby lies on top of her on the breast. Mm. And she's like that. And, the, and we also don't push the baby onto the breast anymore. I know that yes. that was for a while that was kind of the thing to do. But yeah. babies can very well find the breast themselves. And if you just, you know, yeah, give them time and it's, they're, they're relaxed. That's a big thing. You don't want to wait till a baby's screaming in hunger. You really want mm-hmm. to see the first cues of hunger, which may be just going, ah, 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 opening the mouth, putting the fist in the mouth those kind of things, and then, you know, getting them to breastfeed. Now, if a mom really can't breastfeed, there are breast milk banks, human breast milk banks yes. in Australia, yeah. and that would be the second best thing, you know, yeah, where it's you awesome. get milk from someone else who produces too much mm-hmm. and is willing to share, and that milk is actually tested for infections and diseases, so you're not going to get that. Yeah. And... Um, that that would be the next thing I would say if yeah. if all the previous ones have failed. <laughs> okay, that's good. Good advice. 
Mm. Um, we have a, a question here, which is one of those things that we uh, encounter a lot when we do our cooking classes and seminars, and, and sort of the resistance of the partner to change the diet. But I'll, I'll read the question and see what kind of uh, advice you have for us. Uh, so this is from one of our followers. Um, she said, I'd love to ask a question. Mine is regarding my eight-year-old daughter who has autism and SPD. She's eight and is only on the third percentile for her weight and getting her to eat consistently, try new foods, and not to be constipated is a real struggle. Her pediatrician has done her blood work and it's excellent, but she's booked to start a feeding clinic. We have started to remove refined sugar and trying to remove gluten as well, but struggling as hubby is really against trying too much. Um, and... It's hard to get on board as he has, he, he too has a very restrictive diet and refuses to try new food. Really struggling for ideas, strategies, and ways to get her to eat, but also to educate hubby on the importance of diet and gut brain connection. He's very science minded and needs evidence. Exclamation mark. So, uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> this is a variation of a question we hear a lot, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and really, I wanted to address that because it does have a, a bunch of stuff to really address, but I'd love mm-hmm. to get your take on it. Yeah. Well, you know, I love people who are interested in the science behind it, because I think if you want to really understand it, you're, you're much more likely to actually yeah. do it right. Um, there, there are some studies on a gluten and casein-free diet for autism. It's not, you know, it's hard to do a study completely um, blinded. Yeah. Um, there are some that have managed to do it, but they're not huge studies. And um, but they were good. They showed that kids um, who were 100% gluten and dairy-free um, did better with more interaction and so on. Some of them were very short, and they didn't show the change, but they were just short. And one of them, actually, you wonder why they did that study, because they gave the kids gluten and dairy once a week oh. and called that a gluten and casein-free diet. So it's almost like they were trying to sabotage it, you know? Yeah. And then they said, oh, it doesn't work. So, I mean... Um, there is a website called TACA, T-A-C-A dot org, that talk about curing autism, T-A-C-A. And they have a lot of really, really good information. Um, they have the scientific studies on there as well on different topics. So that would be a really good place to look at. Now, I think that every child with autism deserves a three-month trial completely off gluten and off dairy products. Yeah. Because I have seen so many children respond really, really well. Not everybody does, but you're not taking anything away from a child by taking gluten and dairy out as long as you make sure that they get enough calcium and enough calories. Yeah? Most of the foods that kids eat that are um, gluten are white flour. That's not really going to be in any way helpful to their health or their development. Mm-hmm. So if you take that out, you're doing them a great favor. And so if you, um, you, they can have buckwheat, they can have brown rice, they can have millet, they can have quinoa. So there are lots of other things they can eat. Um, and with dairy, the same thing. If a child is very constipated, they probably don't do well on dairy because dairy is constipating. And taking that out of their diet will do them a favor. And you can get lot your protein from other sources. You can get... Um, the calcium from other sources it's you know you you're not missing out by not having dairy and i just like to remind people that we're the only species that drinks milk from a different species all Mm -hmm. other animals drink the milk from their moms 
You won't see a giraffe suckling on an elephant. You know, it just won't happen. And we're the only ones to do that. And the milk of cows is not made for humans. You know, it's a different composition. It's not really, and a lot of people have problems with it. Not everybody, but lots. Mm. So when a child is super, super picky, I often um, check their zinc because if you're low in zinc, your taste buds don't work very well. And then everything you taste kind of tastes awful. Mm. And the other thing is if your zinc is low, you're more likely to have sensory issues. So getting their zinc levels up to normal will help. It will also improve their immune system, their mood. They'll be less oppositional. So the zinc is so important for many, many different uh, um, processes in the body. It's, um, it's like a magic mineral, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think um, so. a seven-year-old girl who has all of these issues would also benefit from being seen in a, in a feeding clinic because, you know, just for the different textures that she may like or not like to help you find textures that she enjoys. For example, I know children who only eat crunchy food. Then we will make, for example, kale chips that are crunchy and, we, you know, crackers that are healthy that they can eat. And there are so many different things you can do with the help of a good nutritionist and a feeding specialist. It does take time, but I have seen hundreds and hundreds of children who used to eat only like three foods now eating a wide variety of a healthy, healthy foods. It does take time. Uh, it, for every child, it's different. Some start eating within four, five, six weeks. They start eating really healthy foods. Some it takes six months or even a year. But just by offering the healthy foods and getting, you know, the basics right, taking out the foods that are actually not good for them. Sugar is not good for anyone, especially not children on the spectrum. I would... As I said, for every child on the spectrum, I would trial them of gluten and dairy. And there are good websites and books that tell you what you can feed them. You know, nice um, ideas of meals. And it's luckily, it's become so much easier nowadays to go gluten and dairy free because there's so many healthy options. It used to be that, you know, you take gluten out and, oh my God, what am I going to give my child? But it's not hard anymore. Um, one of the pitfalls is that if you go gluten-free to buy a lot of store, you know, processed mm. foods that are gluten-free and they are not necessarily healthy. Yeah. So you really want to go to whole foods, you know, as I mentioned, if you want to replace gluten, do it with quinoa, do it with um, some brown rice, millet, um, but also sweet potato, for example, gives you the same kind of calories and starchiness that, you know, kids may need for their energy. Some kids on the spectrum go completely go gaps and that sometimes they need that, you know, really absolutely no grains. But I always start just with the gluten and casein free diet first and mm-hmm. see how they respond. And if all their gut issues disappear and they start eating and their, you know, their behavior and development improve them, they may not need that. Um, but, you know, the GAPS diet can be amazing for some children. Do you ever use the ABA or what is it, behavior analysis strategies for feeding kids? Yeah, so I don't do ABA myself, but um, there are therapists out there that, I, um, that can help children with that. Mm-hmm. And I do think that ABA or RDI, so either applied behavior analysis or relationship development intervention, one of those two would be 
a really, really good thing to start early on with a child on the spectrum Um, because there is research, especially with ABA, which has been now been practiced for over 20 years or many more years actually, but studied intensely for the last 20. They have shown that kids can recover from autism just by doing really intensive ABA, but they do 40 hours a week. Wow. Do you want to just explain a little bit about what that is for our listeners? Yeah, so ABA is is like really retraining the brain. So when you think about when your child gets diagnosed very early with autism, we still don't know exactly what's causing autism. Mm. We don't know what's really, I mean, we know that it's inflammation in the brain and we know that certain parts of the brain are not working very well. And the idea of ABA is that, you know, if a certain part is not working well early on you can still set pathways alternate different pathways that will achieve the same outcome Mm. so if a child can't speak for example because certain parts of the brain for speech are not functioning well you can set down new pathways in the brain by just repeating the same thing over and over again so aba is very repetitive they do um they repeat things 10 times every exercise and then they get a little reward and you for me, it's important that this reward is, of course, not sugar. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it used to be sugar, but now it's often a sticker or just a high five or you know, or something that depending on the child. child. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's um, ABA used to be quite rigid. Now it's become much more organic. Um, it's also rarely now done for forty hours a week because hardly anyone can afford that. Yeah, who has the time? <laughs> well, it's done with therapists. Oh, I see. You pay. I mean, I have a friend, one of the first children with autism I knew was my best friend in America. Her son developed autism. Mm-hmm. And she started intensive ABA with him for 40 hours a week. He did it for two years and he is now 21 and he's completely neurotypical. That's awesome. He had kind of by five years of age, he didn't know anymore there was anything wrong with him. Wow. I mean, I shouldn't say wrong. There's nothing wrong with autism, but different. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. And, um, the yeah so and she did the diet as well and she did some other things but the main thing she did was ABA and the really traditional way now they um here I would say most people do maybe 10 to 20 hours a week of ABA which is still a lot of time for a child Mm. you know so it's still you can still achieve a lot and um so it's really about that repetition of you know getting something completely right until it's kind of carved down into the brain yeah and um it is and it works i have you know i mean sometimes when a child just needs even a neurotypical child just has trouble let's say making eye contact i tell the parents just sit down with your child and say i'm pretending now that i'm the neighbor and i walk by and say hey charlie how are you and all you have to do is hi thanks fine how are you and, and you practice that 10 times, you know, and it really makes a difference. And then the next day you say, okay, today I'm going to pretend I'm different people for each of the 10 trials and you have to do the same thing. And then you can slowly, you know, increase it. And it really, practice really, really works. I mean, we know that any skill you want to learn, you have to do 10,000 hours. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. To get yeah. good at. Um, I mean, for skill, social skills, you probably, depending on how easily they come to you, you may need those 10,000 hours, and that's where the ABA comes in. Mm. Um, we've covered nutrition, and um, whether, whether it's through diet or supplementation, and I'm wondering what are the strategies, strategies you have? Like, um, do you focus on the microbiome at all? And if so, how do you do it? What's your approach? 
Yeah, the microbiome is the hot topic and I definitely focus on it because uh, we now realize that we are actually just evolved as a bag around all those bacteria and viruses <laughs> and parasites that have been around for millions of years, much, much longer than us humans. And they felt like, oh, maybe we're safer if we, we, we grow someone around us, <laughs> so we're safe. Um, so the microbiome is incredibly important. And we are just starting to learn about how hugely important they are, not just for our immune system, but even for our mental health. You know, we now know that um, the, what the bacteria in our gut, for example, can produce chemicals that can either make us angry or they can make us calm. E. coli, for example, which is one of the predominant bacteria in the gut, produce tryptophan. And tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin. Serotonin is a calming neurotransmitter that makes you happy and calm. So if you have really good E. coli levels, you're likely to be calm and happy. If you have a lot of huge amounts of streptococci in your gut, which we all have some of these, you know, we all have a mix of like 500, 600, 700 different kinds of bacteria in our gut. But depending on which ones grow more, it can really affect your mood. So streptococci can make you anxious, for example. Clostridia can make you angry. And we can, do, we can test for these. So there are tests. That, um, some are done in Australia. Some are done overseas. And I do use these to, to actually, in kids, for example, who have chronic diarrhea or constipation or tummy aches or, um, or sometimes even if they just have autism but no gut issues, but that's actually quite rare. You know, most children on the spectrum do have gut issues. And the results um, tell you what bacteria are growing, which ones are lacking. Do you have enough bifidobacter, enough lactobacillus, enough bacteroides, E. coli? Those are kind of the ones that you want lots of. Or do you have a lot of yeast overgrowth, like thrush in the gut? Or do you have too many other bad bacteria? And then you can actually address it very scientifically, you know, and, and feed the good bacteria maybe give probiotics, give foods that feed them and promote their growth and do, sometimes I use herbs to suppress some of the ones that are not so good. But often it's just the diet, really. Just, you know, getting all those vegetables in, the fiber that feeds the good bacteria and take out the sugar and the processed flours that feed the bad bacteria. Mm. And with, um, I mean, lately I've seen a lot of kids with yeast in their system because they had maybe... A, I mean, you may know that women who take antibiotics often develop thrush. And then children often, they develop thrush in their gut. And they may have diarrhea from that. But it also affects their behavior. And those yeast, when you feed them sugar, so when the child eats sugar, they actually transform that sugar. They ferment it into alcohol. And the kids act like they're drunk. They mm. giggle and they wake up at 2 in the morning and they're just laughing and wide awake. And when they, you know, when they have a lot of sugar, they kind of they can't even walk a straight line. Hmm. And taking sugar out of their diet and treating the the yeast can make a huge difference for these kids. So it's really interesting what the microbiome, you know, what an effect it has on our our behavior and our mood. I find that fascinating. Yeah, um, there was a couple of questions about tests. Um, I might just ask you that now um, because some people wanted to know what tests you would recommend for children that have gut health issues and deficiencies and parasites and things 
it's just so confusing and expensive for parents to go down the testing route. Yeah. What do you sort of usually recommend in that area? So my approach is always to start with the tests we can get for free. So we can always do a, um, a test for parasites in the gut through the local lab. Medicare covers that if your child has diarrhea, for example. So a PCR, it's called. And that will pick up things like Giardia, Blastocystis, Shigella. I mean, all kinds of bad parasites, um, Dientamoeba. And a lot of children with gut issues have those, and treating them will already make a big difference. Now, there's one really interesting fact about dientamoeba, which a lot of children have. It's a, it's a microscopic parasite, and it gets carried by pinworms. So if you treat just the dientamoeba, it will come back because the pinworms are still there, and they'll bring it, you know, they carry it. Yeah. So you really have to treat the pinworms first. And most kids will tell you sometimes, oh, I have an itchy bum. Yeah. And sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes maybe we treat it with one dose of Vermox. And that's just not enough. So the way to treat it is you have to do three doses on three days. So you do like a dose on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then two weeks later on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you do the same thing again. So they get six doses altogether. And that's Vermox still? That, either that or Combantrin, one mm -hmm. of the two. And because with the medication, you only kill the adult worms. Ah. They have already laid each 17,000 eggs. <laughs> wow. Before they die. So if you that's don't scary. do that second, all of those, you know, will start laying eggs again. So you Did do... you say three weeks after three weeks? No, two. Two, sorry. So on day one, two, three, and then 14, 15, 16. Right. Basically. Yeah. And that's where you get rid of the pinworms. And a lot of children will already be much calmer hmm. and less hyperactive. And... Um, and maybe have less tummy aches. And then if they've died amoeba, then you can treat that with some medication as well or some herbs if you prefer or probiotics as well or a combination. But if that, you know, so, and then you can do a lot of blood tests as well on Medicare. You know, you can check your vitamin D, your iron, your B12. You can check for allergies. You can check, um, I always check lead and mercury in children who have any kind of developmental issues because, you know, these, it's really important to know if you're exposed and surprisingly many children are. Um, I've seen quite a few kids um, who had mercury poisoning from eating fish soup, you know, where you concentrate the fish basically in the soup and a lot of fish is mercury oh, wow. um, contaminated from the ocean. So. Yeah. And that can cause the same kind of symptoms as autism, mercury wow. poisoning. You know, and then just getting rid of that makes a huge difference. And of course, lead poisoning from old lead paint from before yeah. 1975 is still around and mm -hmm. affects our children's brains. And we know that even the smallest amount of lead in our blood is really bad for the brain. So a, a terrible toxin. Can you... So, yeah? Sorry, this... I just reminded me that I posted something about this on the weekend because someone um, that I know posted about it and they had found levels of high levels of lead in their toddler from lead paint. Can you actually detox from that? Um, yes. She said something about that once you've got higher levels, it's hard to get rid of it. 
Well, well, the first thing is to get rid of the exposure. Yes. Right? So move out of the house <laughs> mm. until it's completely um, all the lead has been taken away. You know, they're very important because it's in the it settles into the dust, onto the ground, and the toddler will pick that up. So really important to get away from the from the source. And then you can definitely get rid of lead. Um, the sooner you do it, the better. So you know, things like vitamin mm. C, for example, help. And acetylcysteine is a good detoxer. Um, you have to have good zinc levels because zinc is important to get, you know, kind of grab the toxins and take them out. You want to make sure that all the elimination pathways work well, that the child, yeah. you know, passes the bowel motion every day so none of the toxins can get reabsorbed, that they have no problem, that they drink enough water so they wee a lot. And I mean, sweating is always a good way of detoxing as well maybe you're not on a toddler but you know older people can um do sports to start sweating or even go mm. into a sauna um very good way of detoxing and there are medications you can use if you have high levels of lead and right. i would recommend that because um yeah you really want to get rid of the lead very important but the number one thing is to get away from the source from the if you keep detoxing, but you still live in the place where the child is exposed to the lead, mm, you're not going not to get good. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I went off on that rabbit trail. You were talking about testing. So did you finish that subject? Sorry. <laughs> no, so I started with the free ones. And then there are many, many tests that are obviously being offered for, you know, for pay. Yeah. Um, most of them get sent to overseas. Some, I mean, for example, we have the Australian Bioscreen Lab. They do a very good stool test where they show you what you know, what are the kind of the bacteria levels in the gut, and um, can be very very helpful. They're in Melbourne, um, then there are other tests like I really like the organic acid test. It's a urine test that gets sent to the Great Plains Lab in America, and it's it's, it's kind of geared towards children with um, autism or developmental mm -hmm. issues. And the tests for, you know, it gives you some information about whether you have yeast or clostridia in the gut, which are probably the most, you know, common problems on the spectrum. Um, the mitochondrial dysfunction, it checks for oxalates. So it checks for it's a whole range of things. It really gives you a lot of information. It's not hugely expensive. And um, I, I really like getting that, not right at the beginning. You know, I always start with the free stuff and the basic stuff and, see how far we get and then yeah. we do that as a next step if needed many yes. don't need it yeah. and so i think you know i would be wary if somebody you know at the first appointment wants you yeah, to do, wanted to do the expensive test you don't yeah. need that you know yeah. you get a lot of information from a good history and some basic testing that can be mm. free I'll just quickly ask a couple more questions here that i've got because i don't i'm mindful of your time um there's a couple of mothers who've asked about kids that just want to eat constantly and they're wondering if it means a nutritional deficiency or one of the ladies says she's um her boy is on he's a two-year-old and he's on stage two to three gaps due to severe allergies and anaphylaxis so um he's having the really nutritious foods but um he just eats and eats and eats and she's just wondering um, how you know if it's a nutritional deficiency or how you know if it's the body healing and growing when they're really hungry all the time. 
Yeah, so um, I think you can probably figure that out by what they look like. You know, are they growing? Yeah. Are they are they looking healthy? And are they? I mean, two year old needs to eat a lot. Yeah, <laughs> they're growing very fast. Um, or do they look really pale and yeah. underweight? Yeah, and, which I mean, is what I was like before I healed my gut. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I would eat all the time. And I do see children who are eating all the time and they're even eating dirt, you know, and that's a a clear sign that the child is looking for a nutrient that they're not getting. And often it is iron. So iron deficient kids will just eat and eat and eat Mm -hmm. um, because, and if they're not eating iron rich foods, they're not getting it. Or if they can't absorb the iron for some reason, you know, inflammation in the gut, then they'll still keep eating. So I think, um, so if the child is eating and eating and eating and not putting on weight and not looking so great, I would look at maybe using some enzymes mm. to help them break down the food better so that they can actually absorb it. And of course, work on the gut and you know, reduce any kind of inflammation in there. Yeah. And if that's not enough, I would check if they you know, have signs or symptoms of, of specific deficiencies. I always look, so if a child is very pale, and kind of tired, I've, I, I mean, I think iron and B12 could be yeah. deficient. You can do a little blood test for that as well. Um, if they have white spots on their fingernails and they're very irritable and they um, are quite picky about their food, even though they eat mm. lots of it but not really variety, I think zinc. Okay. Those are all symptoms of low zinc. And... Um, yeah, there are other, if they have bumpy skin on their upper arms, like that sandpapery feel, that's often an omega-3 deficiency. Mm. And those kids are often a little bit sad or hyperactive. Hmm. Um, but not all, you know, it can be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's so variable. It's variable. But I think it's um, in a kid like that, I would definitely look um, whether they're lacking something. What about if they get the dark purple-looking circles under their eyes? Um, yeah, we call those allergic shiners in yes. medicine because they often caused by allergies. And I can see it in some children. You can clearly see that after they eat a certain food yes. or they go to a certain place, all of a sudden they have the circles. And mm. I would definitely test those kids for allergies. Okay. And um, what kind of test would you do for allergies? Would you recommend? So I mean, it's Obviously. you can either do. Um, a RAS test, which is a blood test, and you have to kind of be very, you have to kind of choose when either way, you have to choose and think what's the most likely that the child's allergic to. So I often have the parents keep a bit of a diary before mm-hmm. and to see, you know, is there any any particular meals after which the child either gets the dark circles or, or just doesn't feel well or has a tummy ache um, or gets flushed and then um, we test those foods. I mean, there are some foods that are more common than others. The most common ones would be dairy, wheat, egg, soy, nuts, and corn. Those, yeah. And then, of course, as the kids grow older, then you add shellfish and fish to that. But those are kind of the most common. And I have to say, 15, 20 years ago, the kids I saw all had one of those as their allergy. Now, kids have not just one, but maybe three or four of those plus really weird ones like buckwheat or rice or oats, you know, I mean, things that we didn't think kids could get be allergic to kids Mm. are now allergic to. So it's, 
definitely increasing. Yeah. So the other test you can do is you can do skin prick testing, which where you make little scratches on the skin. Mm. You put an allergen on there and you just see whether the kid develops a, a red ring around that. But you have to go to see an immunologist for that. They, they do that. Okay. And, um, and then there are tests that you can send overseas, little blood tests for IgG and IgE allergies. Um, and they test for 95 different foods. You don't have to be so picky. You know, you don't have to already know what you're testing for because you're testing basically everything. Yeah. Those are not free, but they can sometimes be helpful. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, if you're, if you have a child who's really going through, um, the asthma and all of that kind of thing, is there, um, someone's just asked, is there a way that you can really support them through a detox process, um, to minimize the symptoms and prevent the need for increased medication? Um, so in a child with asthma, one thing I always look at is how are they breathing? Mm-hmm. A lot of the children with asthma breathe through their mouth instead of their nose. Yeah. And that's a big problem. So apart from looking at their gut flora and at their vitamin D and their zinc and their allergens and all of those things, you know, um, I, I always send these children to someone who specializes in breathing technique. Uh, yes. When you breathe through your nose, you actually, all the air gets filtered through the little hairs in your nose and you get a lot less allergens coming into your system. When you breathe through your mouth, they go straight into the lungs, those allergens. Yeah. Plus, when you breathe through your mouth, you actually overbreathe. You breathe off more CO2, which brings on a whole cascade of um, constricting the little arteries and veins in the body and the muscles get contracted and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of this, what brings on an asthma attack. So mm-hmm. learning to breathe calmly through the nose, there's a specific method called buteco breathing method. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have seen so many children being able to reduce their medication or even come off them completely by learning to breathe properly. Yes. Now, I never tell people to stop the asthma medication. You know, mm. they really need to continue it unless they get better and better and better, and then they can reduce it. Mm-hmm. And if they manage to outgrow their asthma, they can stop the medication. But, you know, don't just stop it and think, oh, no. I'm just going to breathe, <laughs> right? You have to do that under supervision. Yes. But it's, um, I, I have seen many, many children achieve that to come mm. off their medication. So it's possible. Okay. Is this uh, even for kids who have like a blocked nose? Like my daughter has, yeah, as you, as you were saying, uh, she can't really breathe through her nose because it's always blocked. So does Boteco help for that? Absolutely. You know, oh. and that's exactly, I mean, where people tell me, oh, no, but I can't breathe through my nose. It's blocked. And Boteco teaches you to unblock your nose by breathing properly. Oh, when you okay. breathe through your mouth, you actually, your nose gets swollen up, you know. And then there, of course, certain foods that can also make you more congested. And some people it's dairy. So I'd probably, you know, just do a week's trial or 10 days mm-hmm. of dairy to see if that helps as well. But also do the breathing training and see if that helps. And how, how young can a child be when they start that kind of training? So in general, they say school age. They okay. have uh, classes for school age children. I have seen some really clever four-year-olds um, <laughs> um, do the training because they had older siblings who, you know, who were doing it. So they, they, they came along. 
but in general, about five, I think is a good age. Mm. But we can teach children even younger to start breathing through their nose. I mean, one thing you can do is you can just put a little cardboard, just a tiny little piece of cardboard between their lips and say, hold it there while you are drawing, you know, for 15 minutes or something. And they have to hold their mouth shut to hold that cardboard there. Or drinking through a straw, you know, ah, yes. strengthens those muscles. I mean, part of it is that a lot of children have very low muscle tone around their mouth. And it's not just a problem for breathing. It actually has an effect on so many different things. If a child breathes with their mouth shut, their tongue will be at the roof of the mm. mouth and push against the teeth. And that widens the jaw. And you, you actually will have a wider jaw and a totally different face. You know, If mm. you have your mouth open and the tongue is at the bottom, you get this long, thin face you know, where everything. And then you're even you know, the sinuses become kind of narrow. And you know, for life, you'll have problems. So it's really yeah. good to start children when they're young to breathe properly. Our dentist um, was doing a course with my son to teach him how to do that so that his teeth would straighten out naturally. Exactly. Then you don't yeah. need braces later on. Yeah. If the children right. who breathe properly don't need braces. Yeah. You save yourself your $5,000 down the line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, did you have any more questions for We should probably finish up because it's been... So many questions. But yeah, I know. We, just for... <laughs> um, we have to meet more often. <laughs> yes, we will. We will. I'm sure we'll get it. The thing is when a podcast comes out, then we get more questions. <laughs> we go, well, what about this? But, um, yeah, that's really helpful. There's so many um, things about children's illnesses that, it's all interrelated, isn't it? There's so many things that overlap. So maybe um, could we just end with a bit of encouragement from you? Um, <laughs> a good story that you could tell us about, uh, you know, that you've really seen the change in a child through what you do. We would love to hear a good story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have many good stories, but I'm just thinking of a child I saw a few weeks ago who was just sick constantly you know, with one infection after another, whenever there was a virus, they'd catch it. And um, all we needed to do was was really help the whole family to eat a healthier diet, to start eating vegetables because they were like a typical Australian family Mm -hmm. and eating, you know, maybe one or two servings of vegetables (laughs) and not five. (laughs) Yeah. And um, and get rid of the sugar. I tell everyone to watch that sugar movie, which I think is a very yes. entertaining movie. Sugar one for kids, yeah, exactly. And they really get it. Mm. And um, and then the child was uh, vitamin D deficient, like many kids are in the winter here, because the sun is at an angle where you don't make enough vitamin D in the skin, even if you're outside. Mm-hmm. And um, the child was also low in zinc, which is quite typical in Australia because the soils are low in zinc. So we gave a supplement of that. Mm-hmm. And that was two months ago. And we were really afraid that this winter was going to be really bad with lots and lots of infections again. And he has been completely fine. So, wow. you know, it's sometimes it's really simple, good diet and a few basic supplements just to get the levels to optimal, you know, vitamin D and zinc. Omega-3 is a good one to always add in as well um, for the immune system. And you can make a huge difference for everyone. And, um, you know, it makes the child can now go to school. 
you know, it's yeah. not missing school. The parents can go to work because the child mm -hmm. is not sick. You know, everybody's happy. Yeah, that's good. Just simple things like that can make such a big difference. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Lila, and um, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, if anyone has any, if anyone wants to contact you for an appointment, how do they find you? So the best way is to go onto my website, which is mm -hmm. drlilamason.com, drlilamason.com, and they can book an appointment through there. Mm -hmm. and they we'll put the link in the show notes as well wonderful and there, i have a facebook page called dr lala mason where i uh, post you know research on children's health oh, that's and a blog great. as well that um, people can either sign up to my newsletter or just see it on facebook okay so those are good ways of staying in touch you and also have a book which we haven't mentioned oh yes we need to mention that yes tell us about your book Oh, yes. Um, you know, I wrote a book called Children's Health A to Z because people had so many questions and I thought, you know, I can't see everybody. <laughs> no. Um, I want to put all the basic things, all the information that I tell everyone in a book and um, it's been really quite successful. So the first four chapters are kind of the basis of good health. So nutrition, enough sleep, enough outdoor exercise, avoiding toxins, Mm -hmm. um, so one chapter in each and then I have an A to Z of all the common health issues that a child may encounter in their first 18 years you know mm -hmm. from um, tummy aches to ear infections to eczema to oh, that's a useful book <laughs> and it's all very natural the approach yeah. so it's really trying to figure out for each one why does my child have that what testing would be maybe helpful and what can I do at home to get my child well in a, you know, the fastest mm. and most efficient way, but also the most natural way. So um, the book, I just looked on your website, it says for New Zealand. Is that just the, is that the one? So yeah, it says for New Zealand parents because yeah. I wrote it in New Zealand when I was living there and the publisher <laughs> was a New Zealand publisher and they wanted that on there. <laughs> but, but it's um, for anyone. <laughs> it's, it's, for, it's definitely also for Australian <laughs> There's actually going I didn't to, know if you had another version. Yeah, but soon there will be another version, but okay. it's going to be the same version. It just won't say New Zealand on there. Should I wait for the Australian Well, if you have something against New Zealand, then no, no wait. Problem. But otherwise, it's going to be exactly the same book. <laughs> and it's, it's good there's an ebook as well if anyone yeah so that's the easiest way you can go onto yeah. amazon and get the kindle version i think it's nine or ten dollars it's you know it's very cheap and you have okay. it at your fingertips awesome yeah. well i'll put the links to those in the show notes and that'll be really helpful thank you so much thank you it was a great pleasure to talk to you Thanks, well, i hope i hope um everyone's questions got answered but if not then get the book <laughs> <laughs> Okay, right. wonderful. Thank Thanks you. so much. Lovely to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. For those of you on your own health journey, you know that a lot of times it's two steps forward, one step back, and you think you're doing well, and then something else pops up. It's like um, always you're always learning. It's, just a, it's not something that just happens overnight and suddenly you're well. If I actually had been so wrong about this really important thing in my life, what else was I wrong about? And it got me down this, uh, this place of
questioning all the concepts that I had. And then I came to one question, which was, who am I beyond concept? When I was a little kid, I really always had trouble with food intolerances. I realized that there was a lot to be said for the way you eat. You come to the same place that I came to, and it's a place of complete freedom. Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.